You fellas want to read me my rights? You have the right to remain silent. You have the right to have your face kicked in by me. That's nice. You have the right to have your balls stomped by him. I'll waive my rights. A reporter dons a variety of disguises and identities as he investigates a millionaire and a large drug operation. Join us as we discuss good old-fashioned dick jokes, not-so-great steak sandwich jokes, and the celebrities who died in 2022. Then we find out if 1985's Fletch stands the test of time. James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? James says gladiator with a glut Alan says as a father blah blah It's the test of time James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? Test of time James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Test of Time. This is James Brief, speaking with you always. And joining me, as always, is my buddy, my pal, the director, Alan Noah. Hi there, James. How you doing? I'm good. Uh, You know, it's the end of the year. I was thinking we'd also look back on some of the people that uh, passed away in 2022. Uh, Kirstie Alley, she was a huge star in the uh, 80s and 90s, one of my first crushes. I don't know. Did you have a big crush on her when you were younger? No. And I remember that some other people did. And I was like, no, she just kind of is more of like a mom figure to me. I always thought on on Cheers, she was very pretty. Um, yeah. Then you had uh, one of the greatest Batmans ever. He was the voice of Batman on everything from uh, the Batman, the animated series in the 90s, all the way through pretty much every uh, or all the big uh, uh, DC animated Batman films. This man, Kevin Conroy, and he died relatively young, like uh, 60 or so. Yeah, there were musicians. Coolio died. I think everyone was kind of surprised by that. Christy McVie from Fleetwood Mac. Taylor Hawkins. That was a huge shock. Yeah, that was like a gut punch. He was just so beloved, you know, and uh, and and young. And did they ever say a cause of death for him? I thought I read that he had drugs in his system. You know, of course, you think of the family and, and you think of this person's loved ones. But holy shit, poor Dave Grohl. I mean, this guy somehow goes from the biggest band in the world and loses the integral, but well, any one of the three, you know, the, the band doesn't go on. And he winds up arguably the biggest rock and roll band in the world again. Like right. you know, Foo Fighters, this guy has a 20 year career with these guys. And oh, poor guy. I mean, it's just awful all around. Yeah. Meatloaf was also sad. Maybe a little less sad because he was a hardcore anti-vaxxer. No, I shouldn't say it's less sad. But, like, I think he died of COVID, right? Uh, I don't remember. I know he died uh, earlier this year. Um, and I think it was in January, so might have been Omicron. Maybe. Um, you know, another guy who's, uh, you know, I'd kind of been reading about his story over the last couple of years. It was a little sad. He'd pop up in the news once in a while. Aaron Carter. This poor kid, whether it was from boy band fame or fame too early or maybe he was uh, abused, it was just a sad story. And you, you kind of saw him over the last couple of years, like in a downward spiral. Also, two actors from Goodfellas passed away. Uh, we had Ray Liotta, Paul Servino. When Ray Liotta died, I 
did feel a little bit guilty because I didn't shit on him, but I was maybe a little unkind about him in our Goodfellas episode where I kind of just said that he was like the least good actor compared with De Niro and Pesci. You know, it's kind of unfair to compare him to those guys, but then he died and I felt a little guilty about that. Uh, well, uh, it's okay to not be as good an actor as De Niro or Pesci. This is true. And then speaking of mob movies, uh, you had James Caan, who was in The Godfather, only part one. Spoiler alert, maybe, not really. But, you know, he passed away as well. You know, there was another guy, Jason David Frank. Do you know who he was? No. He was one of the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. Oh, My little yeah. sister was a, a big fan of it. So, you know, I'd, I'd casually watch it with her. And one of the years I went to Comic-Con, I was online to meet uh, the late Adam West, you know, who played 1960s Batman. And Jason David Frank, he was going to be signing at like one o'clock. And I was already in line. So he had a lot of people waiting for him. And suddenly there's a roar of applause. As he walks in and he starts pumping his fist up, he starts running down the line, high-fiving everyone, like jumping up and being like, yeah, yeah. And then he runs up the line again, the other side, and then he runs down it again. Everyone's like screaming. The whole entire autograph room is watching this. And, you know, we don't really know who this guy is, but I'm like, this guy loves his fans. And uh, at that moment, he was beloved by a lot of people and it made his and I never forgot that. So when he did die, I, I just noted like, no, that was, that was a shame. He, he brought a lot of joy to a, a lot of people. I saw that. So it's a shame about him. Yeah. I mean, I guess we should mention the queen, Queen Elizabeth. She brought a lot of joy to people. I mean, we're kind of keeping it pop culture unless, I mean, you stretch it a little bit. We did see her in a small cameo in one film, if you can remember. That was not the real queen in the Naked Gun colon files from Police Squad, James. (laughs) That was not her. It's sad that I knew exactly what you meant immediately. Maybe it's not sad. We've known each other for so long. Of course. Um, one other uh, actor, comedian that I have to mention is is the late, great Bob Saget. I mean, he had such a potty mouth that was different from Danny Tanner, but it wasn't just shock humor. I didn't think his humor was always the funniest, but I respected the hell out of the fact that he committed to his bits. Um, and I also respected the fact that other comedians seem to have respected him, which tells me that, you know, he was probably a, you know, a good guy. What was that movie, The Aristocats? Um, that was really, really odd and interesting and funny at parts, weird at parts. But And of course, that uh, movie he directed with Norm MacDonald, uh, Dirty Work. That's an underrated film. It, it's a cult film. I mean, you like it or you don't. We're, we're definitely going to review that at some point. Yes, and I'm I'm trying to line up a guest to talk about Dirty Work. I was very sad when Norm MacDonald died. I think that was 2021. But bringing up the Aristocats, that also brings us to Gilbert Godfrey, who died in 2022. And he was also a very beloved, well-respected comedian. He was a comedian's comedian. And they go into his version of the Aristocats in that documentary, which he told shortly after 9-11 at the Hugh Hefner roast. And it's in very poor taste. But, you know, the joke is always in poor taste and whatever. Uh, But, yeah, another beloved comedian that we lost this year. You know, of course, the uh, the, the great Sidney Poitier, he had won a... uh, 
Best Actor Award, uh, first African-American to win. So I believe it's for In the Heat of the Night. Um, I'm not sure. Anne Heche. Um, I only knew her from a couple things. And uh, finally, uh, the late uh, Robbie Coltrane, uh, who played Hagrid in the Harry Potter films. Yeah, and we saw him in Goldeneye. He had a small role in that movie. Hashtag R.I.P. But let's move on from the dead celebrities, and let's talk about 1985's Fletch. So this movie, if you haven't seen it, it's about Erwin Fletch Fletcher, an investigative reporter doing a story on illegal drugs being dealt on the beaches of Los Angeles. Fletch is posing as a homeless man on the beach, and then a millionaire named Alan Stanwyck offers Fletch $50,000 to kill him. Intrigued, Fletch decides to unearth the full story behind the offer. To do so, Fletch assumes multiple identities. He disguises himself as a doctor and finds out that Alan isn't really sick. He pretends to be an airplane mechanic and learns that Alan regularly flies his plane to South America. By posing as an insurance salesman, Fletch finds out that Alan has a second wife in Utah. Fletch's drug investigation also upsets a local police chief who threatens to kill Fletch. Ultimately, Fletch uncovers the truth about Alan, and wouldn't you know it, he also gets the girl. So I know that this movie was a cult hit. It was a a beloved movie, but was it a popular movie? How did it do at the box office? Yeah, it did pretty well. Um, It opened on May 31st, 1985, and it opened at number two with uh, $7 million, and it wound up grossing $50 million, which is a seven times multiplier of its opening weekend. So it seems to have been a really big hit. And if we look at the yearly uh, box office uh, from 1985, guess how Fletch did? Uh, I don't know, top 10? Top 10. It was the number nine film of the year. Wow. Of course, you know what number one was. In 1985? Oh, Back to the Future. Excellent, of course. And we reviewed um, most of these films. Back to the Future was number one. We have not reviewed Beverly Hills Cop, but we did Rambo 2. No. No, Sorry, we did Rambo colon First Blood Part 2. There you go. Uh, We did Rocky IV, Mm. uh, Cocoon. Uh, We did not do Witness. Have you ever heard of that film? Yeah, I've heard of it. That's a Harrison Ford film where he's like investigating a murder or something. Um, Then number seven, The Goonies. Uh, We have not done Police Academy 2, colon, their first assignment, which is number eight film, which beat Fletch. And Fletch beat... James Bond, A View to a Kill. And this film was notoriously like this kind of shut down the uh, Roger Moore franchise for a while. And it kind of shut down until they restarted it with uh, Timothy Dalton. But uh, Fletch, yeah, this was the number nine film. So it was a pretty big hit. Sounds like it. And I had never seen this movie before watching it today. I had heard of it. I knew of it. And I knew that people really, really, really loved it. Had you seen it before? I had seen exactly one scene of this film, and I thought it was hysterical. I knew that Fletch had something to do with, uh, he had a lot of disguises, and I'd seen the one scene where he's a basketball player, and the announcer says, he's six foot five or six foot nine with afro. And I thought that was hysterical. You know, Chevy Chase, for me, I liked a lot of films he was in. But I did not pursue Chevy Chase films. Like, I might have said, oh, Steve Martin's in a film. I might watch him in the 80s or Harrison Ford. Yeah, I'm going to watch this Witness film. Chevy Chase, if I missed it because someone else wasn't in it, I may not have come back to it. And Fletch was one of those films that um, 
I'd always seen in the VHS rental store. And there was another sequel, Fletch Lives. I remember that came out when we were a little older. But I had never seen this film either. And yeah, it was the first time ever watching it. I also was not a huge Chevy Chase fan. I like the vacation movies. I like him in Caddyshack, but I was never like going out of my way to see a Chevy Chase movie because it was a Chevy Chase movie. Right, like I had seen films like Three Amigos, and that was Steve Martin and Martin Short and Chevy Chase, and then a movie like Spies Like Us, which I had seen a lot as a kid. That was a Dan Aykroyd and Chevy Chase film. And, you know, Dan Aykroyd was Ghostbusters, and he was all these other films that I'd seen. And if it wasn't for this podcast, I probably never would have watched it. Yes, definitely. And one of the things I like about this podcast is that it forces me to watch these movies that have been on my list forever. So I am glad that I've seen Fletch. And like you, I also knew one thing about it, which was that he wears a lot of disguises. And I wasn't sure why, if he was like a detective or a spy or whatever. Turns out he's a reporter, which they say right in the beginning in voiceover. Great. But, you know, like when when you have voiceover and it's like a kind of like a reporter or a detective who's kind of piecing a mystery together, that's a little less annoying because it kind of just helps the audience follow what's going on. Not only is it less annoying, but it's also a little more classic. That's kind of your, you know, your gumshoe. Like, that's kind of the way those old movies were. And for that reason, I think that the voiceover is perfectly appropriate. But more so, like you said, it was a mystery. Sort of like the way there was a voiceover in uh, The Naked Gun. And he's piecing the clues together. How did he get the gun? How did it happen this way? And where the hell am I? You know, they make a joke of it. But I think it really works in this film. Right, right. So there's basically two main mysteries in this movie. The first is this drug running thing on the beach. And that's where we start the movie. And then he meets this other guy named Alan. And Alan is a millionaire who wants Fletch to kill him. And so then immediately Fletch like kind of drops the whole figuring out who's supplying the drugs on the beach thing and is then just researching Alan. And I was not at all surprised at the end when those two stories came together. I think that was kind of predictable. But I also felt like the whole Alan wants him to murder him thing, to me, that was just kind of less interesting. I thought the drug story maybe had more potential. Did you think that? When I saw Tim Matheson, uh, the, the guy who plays the uh, the rich uh, Allen guy, this was kind of intriguing. This is almost the plot of like a Hitchcock film. Like, I need a stranger to kill me so that the insurance will pay off for my family. Yeah, I mean, what's his excuse? He says uh, he has some kind of bone cancer, right? Bone cancer, correct. Right, right. Yeah, because there's a great line later when Fletch, he's disguised as a doctor. He can't remember what it was. He said, oh, yeah, um, uh, Allen has a, a carcinoma, a melanoma, some kind of noma. I thought that was funny, even though the correct thing would be some kind of Oma, not necessarily Noma. But I still think that the actual plot of what Alan's offering is quite intriguing. I thought that the plot would be more that this guy genuinely was in some kind of bind. Maybe he he had done something bad, but I almost thought it was kind of noble. He wants to die so that his family gets the life insurance uh, payout. Maybe he's going to redeem this bad thing he did. Maybe he is involved in the drug trade. But in the end, it, it isn't 
exactly what I thought. Alan turns out to be kind of a, a bad guy as well. And uh, the whole thing was a setup. Uh, it turns out that he was going to have Fletch break in, but then uh, he was going to kill Fletch and because their bone structure is similar. He was going to burn his body or something. Obviously, this doesn't hold up because of DNA. Yeah, I think my biggest quote-unquote problem with it was that Fletch says that he's been working this drug story at the beach for, I don't remember, weeks, months. He has to publish a story by like this weekend. The newspaper ran an ad about the story before the story ran and before the story was finished, which seems like a really stupid thing to do, but whatever, movie logic, fine. But like, why does he just abandon that? Because now he wants to investigate Alan. It seems like he really needs to follow through on that first thing he was working on instead of just following this obsession about why would someone hire me to kill him when he had a good reason, like you said, the the insurance and everything. He didn't need to dive so deep into that investigation. I guess maybe you chalk it up to investigative reporter instincts, maybe? Well, I think he was thinking almost like me, like this poor guy. He's not really going to murder him. He wants to see what's going on here. So he goes first to the hospital. And like I was saying before, that's kind of the shtick about Fletch. He puts on a lot of disguises. He's going into the medical records room and he's got to kind of distract the woman or kind of give her the impression that he has an authority to be there and he can just ask for records. This Secretary is not sure like if she should do it. And he goes, it's okay. I'm Frida's boss. And she goes, who's Frida? And he goes, my secretary. And, you know, it's a line that it takes a while to, to actually get. I had to think about it for a moment. It means nothing, but it's delivered so well. And he walks right past her that I, I laughed. I thought it was very funny. I think that was in a different scene. I think that was when he was like talking to Alan's father-in-law. That's possible. Yeah, but like, I, I get what you're saying. It's this circular logic. And that kind of thing did strike me in this movie that Fletch lies all the time to everyone, often pretty badly, and very, very, very few people actually call him out on it. And you would sort of expect that at some point someone's going to be like, you're full of shit. And no one really does. The one point where it comes closest is when he's pretending to be the airplane mechanic and the guys are like asking him about certain things. And, oh, do you think the problem is this line or whatever? And he's like, oh, I'll investigate. And then he goes to the wrong end of the plane and they're like, don't you want to go over there? And he's like, yes, of course I do. But like at some point, these guys should say, you're not a mechanic. Clearly, you don't belong here. Who the fuck are you? You know, right. like no one really calls him out on it. I mean, in any field, your field, my field, it would be incredibly easy to even fake it and be like, yeah, there's no such thing as the US NMA scores in medical school. That's that's a made up thing. So why'd you just say you did it? He never thinks to pre- come up with an idea of what his fake name should be. He always seems to think of it on the, on the spot, like, oh, I'm Ted Nugent. And at one point when they ask him what his name is, he goes, my name is Dr. Rosenpenis. What? Uh, Dr. Rosenrosen. What did you say the name was? And he just says, Dr. Rosen. And you know, he went from Rosenpenis to Rosen, and no one calls him out on it. It's pretty funny. 
Well, the the Rosen joke is because when he's trying to find the records room, he's looking at the directory and all of the different doctors are Dr. Rosen something. So then he just kind of riffs on that. He says his name is Dr. Rosen Rosen. But in the background, while he's in the hospital, over the PA, you can hear them paging Dr. Rosen's. They page Dr. Rosenstein and Dr. Rosenberg and Dr. Rosen whatever. So like they do kind of pay that off, not just with Chevy Chase, but also with just like the background audio, which I appreciated. I thought that was pretty funny. I did hear those names. I didn't catch that he was reading it off the uh, off the ledger there. Um, another name joke I thought was very funny was he was in uh, the doctor's office. He was not a doctor this time. He was a patient. Let me just play a clip. It, it's, it's pretty funny. Now, how long have you had these pains, Mr. Barber? Now, that's Babar. Two Bs? One B. B-A-B-A-R. That's two. Yeah, but not right next to each other. I thought that's what you meant. Arnold Babar. Isn't there a children's book about an elephant named Babar? I don't know. I don't have any. No children? No elephant books. It's very deadpan humor. You know, Chevy Chase was known for, like, that on Saturday Night Live. Do you remember his famous introduction to um, um, Weekend Update? Of course I do. I'm Chevy Chase, and you're not. Of course. And that's kind of his humor. It's almost like the beginning of, like... Not asshole humor, but it's a little snobbish humor. To me, this joke is very Naked Gun airplane-esque, where it's like, there's a problem in the cockpit. The cockpit, what is it? It's a room in the front of the plane where the pilot sits. But that's not important right now. It's that kind of delivery. I did laugh when he said, no, elephant bucks. I kind of saw it coming, but I appreciated it, and it made me laugh. You had the right description. It's not snobbish. It was more, uh, are you an idiot? A cockpit is where the pilot sits. And uh, it's just the way he says it. It's very funny. One other joke I should mention that really cracked me up was when he's first talking with Alan. And Alan's like, oh, if you're going to kill me, you need gloves. Do you own gloves? And then Fletch is like, no, I rent them. Lease with option to buy. Like, that's pretty damn funny because obviously no one would rent or lease gloves. But there was one joke that I had heard from other people about this movie. And people have told me that this joke is very, very, very funny. And that's when he's at the country club and he's ordering stuff on Mr. Underhill's tab because Underhill is some douchebag who's at the country club who doesn't give a nice tip to the waiter who's working very hard. So Fletch orders on his tab and he says I'll have a bloody mary and a steak sandwich and a steak sandwich and the joke is that he repeats steak sandwich twice I never thought that joke was funny when people told me that it was funny before I had seen the movie and then watching the movie and seeing it in context I still don't think that joke is very funny Yeah I remember that line that wasn't funny uh, I can see how it's a famous joke in in the same way that uh People were quoting all these lines from Caddyshack that when I finally saw it, I'm like, if there's never been a comedy film that that's the best you have, sure. But, uh, you know, we have a lot better now than this. I don't know that it's famous. It might just be that I had one or two friends who had mentioned it to me. I honestly don't even remember who it was. I just heard it in the movie and I was like, oh, yeah, someone's told me that that's really funny. Yeah, it doesn't really work for me. You know, the film takes a weird twist when there's some crooked cops. And okay, you know, crooked cops is kind of almost a cliche when there's a drug deal. Like, one of the cops is in on it. But these cops, like, bring Fletch to a jail cell. And 
They're pointing a gun straight at his head. And I really think that Fletch might have almost been killed by this chief of police if he didn't decide, okay, I'm not going to investigate you guys anymore. I don't really care. I think this guy might have done it and he probably would have gotten away with it. Well, yeah. And I think that's kind of the point is that in the aftermath of that scene, Fletch goes and talks to his boss at the paper and is like, I almost died. And the boss like doesn't believe him at all. And like, you kind of understand from the boss's point of view, because literally every single fucking thing that Fletch says is a joke or a lie. And at this point, he actually is rattled and he actually was close to death and no one believes him. It's the classic boy who cried wolf situation. Yeah, he's really freaked out at that point. And it kind of helps bring up some stakes, you know, that there actually is real life or death danger. And not uh, steak sandwiches. Correct. Yes. I, I did like uh, the line when uh, he's talking to these cops and and he goes, aren't you going to read me my rights? And the cop says, you have a right to remain silent. You have a right to have your face kicked in by me. You have your right to have your balls stomped on by me. And Fletch says, um, I think I'll waive my rights. <laughs> that's, that's a very good uh, deadpan Chevy Chase line. Right, right. There are a lot of gay jokes in this movie. And by gay jokes, I mean jokes at the expense of gay people where it's like, ha ha, you're gay. And that's the joke. When he's at the police station, he says that the police chief is a lot nicer since he came out of the closet. And then the other guys are like, oh, we'll get you for that. And when he's at the doctor's office and he's getting his prostate exam, there's some jokes there. I thought those jokes were less like, you know, dated gay jokes and more like prostate exam jokes and colonoscopy jokes. I think that area of jokes has mostly been explored. I'm sure there's other ways to do it, but the whole, like, the hand is up the uh, the butt. Hey, doctor, you, you, you're gonna buy me dinner beforehand? Like, that kind of joke? Like, alright. Eh, not that funny. Because I believe the line he says is, you're gonna use your whole fist there, doc? The gay joke I was referring to there was, he said, did you ever do time? Yeah, I agree. That, that one was uh, you know, a data joke, certainly. I didn't think any of those jokes were funny. Because it turns out later that uh, Alan has uh, two entire lives. He has a whole other family uh, somewhere else, I think in Provo, Utah, yeah. and and he has a wife here. So Fletch, uh, he gets with the uh, wife, uh, like one of the wives, not not the wife with the, with the family. And Alan's like, how did you figure it out? And Fletch replies, it was something your wife said while we were in bed together. She said we had the same build. And then he goes, from the waist up, I imagine. Which is funny for two reasons, because Tim Matheson is, uh, I mean, you don't see him shirtless, but he, he's a very good looking man. You kind of imagine that uh, he's saying the joke of, oh, yes, I, she certainly confused me with your body, Alan. And then it's also the joke of like, ah, but it was only from the waist up that she would confuse our bodies because waist down, I am much, much different. I, I thought that was a good joke. Yep, good old-fashioned dick joke. Yeah, exactly. It works if you do a well-placed fart joke. It works, too. The problem is when the punchline is fart, then that's not as funny. Exactly. I wanted to talk about the scene where Fletch is in Utah, and he breaks into this real estate office, and there's a guard dog that opens doors <laughs> by, by putting its mouth on the doorknobs and, like— turning the doorknobs i couldn't help it it made me think of jurassic park when the velociraptors open the doors and like 
they're supposedly highly intelligent and they can just kind of like move the lever down with their paw, claw, whatever. The paw that they had clearly established earlier in the film that these intelligent animals use. Like, yes, they had set up that these are highly intelligent. They have this claw. Remember the archaeological dig in the beginning? Alan takes out that claw. He's like, they could do a lot with this claw. And later he uses the claw to open it. Like, that is established. What they don't say is that these are like genius dogs or that Alan like trains dogs, you know, that maybe that would work. But what really bothered me here is even if I buy it, you know, after like, you know, five or six rattles of that handle, the dog gets through it. Fletch goes through like, four more doors. Why doesn't he shut all of them? He does not shut several doors. You could clearly <laughs> outrun the dog if you shut like three doors. Yes, he's going to get through all of them, but you'll clearly get away. Fair. Also, then like Fletch tries to distract the dog by saying, look over there, defenseless babies. And the dog seems to say, what? You know, like it, it's kind of like a, a a dog noise, you know, but it also seemed like he said what? Well, I almost do like that because it does go to show this dog might have been trained to attack uh, burglars. But what it doesn't do is these dogs are sweethearts to, to babies. They're probably a sweetheart to babies. Don't say that about a sweet house dog that's just protecting his home and his masters or his family. Sure. You know, uh, I had mentioned um, that there was a sequel to the film, Fletch Lives. I had never seen that. But I remember that throughout the 90s, there was always talk about this other film called Fletch One. And it was spelled Fletch W-O-N, but it was a prequel, meaning like Fletch One, the number one, as in the origin of Fletch. And I think it was like his high school or early years. Kevin Smith was attached to direct it. It was one of those things you heard over and over, like Entertainment Weekly or something would say, it's a go, it's canceled, it's a go again. You would hear about Fletch for years because this was not like some random IP. This was a very well-liked novel series. And that's kind of where the voiceover comes from and how you can tell that there's probably a more serious tone in the novel than than, uh, Chevy Chase gives it. But uh, finally, uh, this year, there was another Fletch movie that came out. It was based on, uh, I believe, the second novel in the series called Confess Fletch, and it stars John Hamm. And while I was watching the film uh, Fletch, I was totally thinking, I could see John Hamm doing this. John Hamm's a great actor, and he'll do his own way. I've not seen the film. I I assume you haven't. No, I might not be correct about this. I didn't really do a lot of research, but it seems like John Hamm wanted to do that movie. John Hamm doesn't have to do jack shit for money but like he wanted to be fletch and a lot of people did want to be fletch in those other iterations of the prequel that you were talking about it was like a passion project like people really were into it kevin smith wasn't just attached to do that movie because hey kevin smith likes to do movies he really wanted to make a fletch movie because he loved fletch it took many many years and it took john ham being passionate about it but yeah now there is a new one and i very quickly looked and apparently it got pretty good reviews people seem to have liked it so i don't know maybe i'd check it out Oh, yeah, it got 86% uh, positive reviews on Rotten Tomatoes. It's uh, directed by Greg Matola. He's directed uh, some really good films, super bad. You ever see this movie called Adventureland? I did see it. I was not impressed by that movie. 
Okay. But um, yeah, it could be an interesting film to catch. You know, it's on, what is that, Netflix or uh, Hulu or one of those. I'm one not of those sure. streamers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But let me ask you, James, do you think that this movie, Fletch, just plain old Fletch, do you think it stands the test of time? Um, I'm going to say a, a very surprising yes. Like you said, there's the gay jokes. Those are dated jokes that were not uh, funny then and you know, don't really help today. Um, but this was a funny film. That basically what it comes down to. I laughed like several times in an hour and a half. And I had a really good time. I don't know if I want to watch Fletch Lives because it was not good enough to spawn a third one. So I kind of hold it against itself in that regard. But um because I saw Fletch, I certainly would give it a shot if I ever came across it and it was on, or I'm actually kind of intrigued to watch Fletch live. So I would say that's quite an endorsement that a film that's, uh, you know, 30 something years old uh, that I never really wanted to see. Not only did I like it, but it kind of said, yeah, I think I'll check out some other things in the series. So it held up for me a surprising yes. Uh, what do you think, Alan? I did not find this movie as funny as you did. And that's not to say that I didn't laugh at all. I did. There were some funny moments. We talked about them. But I overall found it to be just kind of eh. And I was trying to think about why. Because, you know, you mentioned Naked Gun. And to me, I think that the delivery that Chevy Chase has is sort of kind of on par with Leslie Nielsen, the dry delivery where it's just kind of a deadpan response when someone says something serious and then he just responds with something ludicrous. But there's a big difference between Leslie Nielsen and Chevy Chase. And I was thinking about it a lot today. I think I figured out what it is. In Airplane and in Naked Gun, when Leslie Nielsen delivers a deadpan line, it's not a joke. It's not a joke to him, and it's not a joke to the person that he's saying it to. When Jane in Naked Gun says, would you like a nightcap? And Frank Drebin says, no, thank you. I don't wear them. He's not making a quip. He's not trying to be funny to impress her. He's just saying that he doesn't wear nightcaps because he thinks she's offering him a nightcap. And she also doesn't think he's making a joke. But in Fletch, everything that Fletch says is is a joke. He's trying to make the person laugh. And Gail Stanwyck, uh, Alan's second wife, who he's hitting on constantly, she does call him out on that. It's like, do you really have to make a joke? Are you really going to hit on me right now? This isn't the right time, blah, 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 blah. But everyone knows that he's joking. And I don't know why that matters. It's a small detail. It shouldn't matter. Like, even as I'm saying it, I'm like, this shouldn't really fucking matter. But for some reason, it does. It makes Fletch more of a smartass, which I guess I just don't like him as much as Leslie Nielsen, who's just unbelievably deadpan and dry and not trying to be funny. And that makes him funny. That's a fantastic observation. I think you're spot on with uh, the difference between Chevy Chase and Leslie Nielsen. Yeah. So I think that was why a lot of the jokes didn't land for me. There are also just some things in here that are just really dated references. When uh, Alan first brings Fletch to his house, he's like, oh, I was going to buy this house, but this is where Hopalong Cassidy killed himself. I don't know who Hopalong Cassidy is. I Googled it, and I honestly don't even remember some fictional cowboy or something. There's a couple references to Ed McMahon's Publisher's Clearinghouse. 
I get that reference. You probably get that reference, right? You probably got those things in the mail. You know, a younger person wouldn't get that reference. Gina Davis is in this movie. She works at the newspaper. Her name is Larry. I don't think they ever explain why, but whatever. Her name's Larry. But like she and Fletch have a weird flirty relationship where she's like scratching his back in the office pretty inappropriate workplace stuff then he like is taking notes into his audio cassette recorder and apparently he recorded a woman without consent that's a silly gag in 1985 and now you look at it and you're like yeah that doesn't uh seem quite so silly those things you can kind of overlook as oh it's just a, a product of the time you know whatever i just didn't really find the movie that funny so uh for me i'm gonna say that it does not stand the test of time I mean, it's absolutely one of those things where the humor either connects with you or it doesn't. You know, humor is, in the end, subjective. This film, this is really a hit or miss one. But, um, you know, this was enough for for me to watch uh, John Hamm's film. I just thought it was actually more clever than I thought. I did not think there would be a clever plot. I thought it was going to be somewhat stupid. I think that's a fair point that, like, it's a mystery and, you know, Fletch does slowly peel back the layers and A leads to B leads to C. And I think for the most part, it did make logical sense. There was one part. Oh, I remember what it was when Fletch goes to Utah and he finds Alan's other wife's house. I didn't understand how he knew where the house was other than it was in this one town in Utah. Like, how did he get her address? Maybe I missed something and it was explained and whatever. That's a small detail. But um, the mystery, I think, works overall. I just also kind of thought it was very convenient how he's doing this one story. Someone completely random sends him on this other goose chase where he starts investigating this totally unrelated other thing. But then it turns out in the end, no, they're totally related because the police chief is dealing the drugs and the police chief works with Alan. That's just a coincidence that didn't need to be there and apparently is not in the novel that the movie is based on. Apparently in the book, the police chief wants to kill Fletch because Fletch busted him and then he shows up at Alan Stanwyck's house and then they're all there at the same time. But it wasn't because the police chief was working with Alan. Hmm. So that kind of like makes a little bit more sense organically. It's a movie, movie logic, yada, 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 whatever. But, you know, I am still glad that I watched this movie. And now when someone makes a steak sandwich and a steak sandwich joke, I'll at least understand what the hell they're talking about. And still not think it's funny. Exactly. But that's going to do it for us this week. We will be back next week. And next year, when we talk about High Fidelity, starring John Cusack, I'm really excited to watch this movie. I saw it once in the theaters in the year 2000 when it came out. I remember really enjoying it, and I'm very much excited to watch that movie again. I love me some Nick Hornby films. He wrote the novel that it's based on, but uh, he's made some fantastic uh, novels that have been fantastic films. One of my favorite films ever is based on a novel of his. Which one's that? About a boy. Have you ever seen it? Maybe. Ah. Well, we'll get to that eventually. Sure. But until then, we want to hear from you guys. We are at Test of Time Pod on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Write to us about Fletch, your favorite Fletch memories, your favorite Fletch costume, your favorite Fletch one-liners. If you've seen the new Fletch movie with John Hamm and you think we should check it out, let us know. 
or something that has absolutely nothing to do with legend. That's fine, too. We love hearing from you guys, and uh, we'll see you next year. Goodbye, everybody. Bye, everybody.